And I think it's up to folks doing the work, up to the allies to keep the momentum. Because like I said, it's a journey, not a destination. We're not going to be able to eradicate racism in my lifetime, but we are able to work towards moving towards equity, moving towards justice, moving towards the disruption, dismantling of these systems and structures of power by each one of us taking ownership and accountability to disrupt. Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity, diversity, and inclusion to build inclusive communities. Today, I'm joined by our very own Leila Akison, who is our project coordinator here at Curated Leadership. And she is going to put me in the hot seat today. So I'm going to pass the mic on to you, Leila. Welcome. Hi, Shalisa. Thank you. And I'm so excited to interview you today. Um, I'm just going to introduce you quickly so folks can get to know a little bit more about you, and then we can jump into the interview. Shaliza Jamal is the founder and executive director of Curated Leadership Inc., a coaching firm that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, nonprofits, and corporations to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. As an equity and inclusion facilitator and Ontario certified educator, Shaliza brings over a decade of experience using an anti-racist lens in designing curriculum and implementing training and development programs aimed at addressing inequitable outcomes for underserved communities. Shaliza currently serves as a board member of the Harvard Graduate School of Education Alumni Council and is a founding member of the Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs Council Canada. She is also a board member for Working Culture. Shaliza has a background in arts education and often uses theater-based techniques to develop embodied empathy to engage participants in dialogue about oppression. She uses a calling-in approach to bring people together to listen and learn with empathy. Shaliza is a PhD candidate at OISE University of Toronto in the Department of Social Justice Education with a research focus on race bias in teacher education programs. So I'm just going to jump into some questions so folks can learn a bit about you and kind of get to know what Curated Leadership is all about. Sounds great. It's uh, interesting to be on the other side of the mic. So take it away, Layla. Great. So Curated Leadership is now in its third year and it was recently incorporated. So tell us a bit about what led to the creation of Curated Leadership and what motivated you to step into this work. And then just a little bit about your journey starting Curated Leadership. Thank you, Leila. So, you know, I've always been doing this work around diversity, equity and inclusion, around anti-racism and anti-oppression. And as you sort of read out in my bio, I was doing this work on the stage and I was writing plays. I was working on collective creations and working with students who were taking my drama classes to really think about issues of justice and issues of belonging and equity in the work that I was doing. And I went into teaching about 13, 14 years ago, and I started doing this work intentionally in the classroom. And then I started working with teachers and sharing some of this embodied empathy work through theater of the oppressed pedagogy, through role play and through script writing to really allow people to see the images uh, in front of them. Because I really think that theater and self-expression is a way to learn about uh, principles of anti-oppression and what's happening in our world. So it started out that way. And when I went to do my master's at Harvard, I was looking at opportunities to share this work. 
And because I was on a sabbatical, I had time to actually explore and experiment with different tools. And I was an arts and education major. And I ran, I remember I ran a opening workshop or an opening uh, activity, a warm-up activity with my colleagues around thinking about power and privilege and thinking about stereotypes. And it went over really, really well. And so I thought, what if I plan a workshop that is for people who are not with an arts background, folks from all around the school, faculty, staff, students, um, administrators, guests, part of the community, to share some of the work that I had been doing in the classroom and with educators around theater of the oppressed pedagogy. So it started this day, I think it was November 13th, 2017, and it was a Monday night, it was super rainy, and I thought, who is going to show up for this workshop? But I held a workshop, it was two hours long, where I walked folks through techniques of theater and role play and tableau, really concentrating on these issues of power and privilege and oppression. And over 55 people showed up on a Monday night on this rainy fall day, and it really taught me that this work of embodied empathy, this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, thinking about issues of justice were very transferable and were really important and key. And everyone was really understanding and wanting to gain these skills. So I would say because I was off work from my full-time job and in a space of experiment, if you will, through my year during my master's, I was able to kind of experiment and lead more of these workshops. At the same time, I was also an equity and inclusion fellow for the School of Education, where I got to lead workshops around different issues like cultural appropriation, bias, uh, tokenism, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as a whole, how to have courageous conversations. So I built in some of these approaches I had, and it was almost like a year of practicum where I created workshops, I hosted them in different centers for different folks, and there was a lot of buy-in, and I saw that there was a lot of transformation and aha moments with the people who are participating. So I started to kind of put on more workshops through word of mouth, and one of my classmates, roommates, actually came to one of my sessions and said, I'm in, you know, teacher's college here at a local university. I think you would be great to kind of do a session for us on anti-oppression with my, my classmates who are teacher candidates or who are studying to become teachers. So after I graduated, actually, at the end of May in 2018, I ran my first sort of paid workshop. And it was so fulfilling. It, I learned a lot from the experience. And so when I moved back to Toronto, I started to run more and more workshops, but not only for educators, for community members. At the same time, I had also taken a class at the Harvard iLab or Innovation Lab around educational entrepreneurship and social uh, impact and innovation. So then I started to build like a business plan and an idea for a company in that course. And so I sort of took the experience of that course and these workshops, and I started to put my offerings out there. And meanwhile, this is the same time I was running my full-time job back. So it was evenings and weekends. And there started to be, again, a lot of buying, a lot of receptiveness. 
So then I started to sort of create more media attention. I created an Instagram account. I didn't really know what my company would be named. It's been through three iterations from uh, Culture Ally to SBJ Coaching and now to Creative Leadership. And so I started to actually build a clientele out of word and mouth. And I started to do a lot of work in the summers when I wasn't teaching full time. And so it started to grow and develop. And, you know, I will say that when the pandemic hit, it was a real opportunity for me to grow my participant base from just in Toronto, from, you know, in-person workshops to actually global workshops. I started running workshops in Boston, um, in London, England, in Vancouver, and other parts of the States. So the pandemic really created an opportunity for me to share my work with folks around the world. Although I wasn't getting that theater element out there, I was able to reach a lot more folks. Then with the murder of George Floyd, I think that the offerings grew, both for me and for folks wanting to learn. And I think there was a number of folks who were already learning about bias and anti-oppression, but now folks were really committed to learning about anti-racism. And so I began to engage with multiple participants and work on EDI strategies or equity, diversity and inclusion strategies for workplaces. And as that happened, as I continued to grow this year in September 2021, I was able to take a sabbatical from my full-time job and really work on scaling creative leadership to really expand and meet the needs of, of the demand that my participants had, that my organizations that I was working with had. So really, it grew from work that I was doing as a volunteer, as an activist throughout high school into a thriving company. And I think it just became experimental and working with different folks and it just grew up that way. And I think there's lots of different pathways that it took. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, it definitely does. And so now that you've talked about the origins of curated leadership and a bit of its trajectory over time, I need to touch on this a bit, but how have you seen curated leadership grow over time and how do you see it continuing to grow in the future? Absolutely. So I started with workshops that were theater-based, and I still offer those now that we're opening back up somewhat. But now my workshops are over, you know, virtual platforms, and they've grown to different countries, but also various topics. So I've gone from, you know, starting with just talking about bias, to principles of anti-oppression, to anti-racism, to microaggressions, to really being part of folks' onboarding processes, I've also grown to do a lot more, as I was saying, EDI strategies. So working with folks in organizations with their EDI or DEI, depending on which acronym you start with first, I've been working with organizations over three and six months. So I'm moving away from these one-off workshops to actually growing to strategic work with organizations to see real transformations. We also started a podcast uh, last June. It started out as an IG Live in September of, I think, 2020, and it was sort of to have conversations during the pandemic to keep conversations of justice and equity alive, and then last June, I transitioned to having those as a podcast, which you know, you're, you're producing all of that stuff for us, so that's how it grew there. I also had an ask for some executive coaching, so I started to do a lot of executive coaching and coaching for individuals who are a doing this work who want to do this work 
who are trying to do this work in their organization. So I've done a lot of coaching work, one-on-one coaching. I've also started to develop some online course modules for some of my partner organizations. And we at Curated Leadership are also working on our own learning platforms that we're going to put up. But there's been more and more community partnerships that Curated Leadership has done that we continue to do in the future, which is really great. And of course, some of these online workshop offerings so that folks who maybe don't work for an organization or want to work with asynchronous learning can uh, you know, purchase those courses online and do them at their own pace. So that's kind of what the, what the future is. And of course, just thinking to grow and scale as an organization. Yeah, that's awesome. So in your work, you talk a lot about how our personal identities inform our experiences when it comes to bias and oppression amongst other topics. How do you find that your own identities inform and inspire your DEI work? So I think a lot of the work that I do is rooted in understanding your identities or folks might have heard it as identity mapping or telling our personal narratives. Because if we don't know who we are and how we show up in this work as leaders, as individuals, as practitioners of DEI, it's difficult to actually unlearn our biases and unpack oppressive structures. So I think identity is really the cornerstone, understanding who we are, how we show up. And I often use a metaphor that comes from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's work as a multicultural literature professor. And she talks about windows, mirrors, and sliding doors as opportunities to dig in deep to characters. Now, I use her framework to think about what do I know about myself? What is that mirror and reflection of what I know about myself? And what is that window of opportunity to continue to learn more about others? So when we talk about uh, addressing identities, it's key that we think about who we are and our intersectional identities. Now, intersectionality is really these multiple forms of discrimination that an individual faces, but also how we show up, right? So I identify as a South Asian woman. I have light skin privilege, and I'm able to leverage that privilege to do the work I do. And so I think that understanding that, you know, I identify as a cisgender, able-bodied, South Asian Muslim woman, I come to this work bearing the knowledge of those identities, some of which are, uh, you know, historically and currently facing oppression or marginalization, and some of which have social power. And I can use those to create a platform to talk about really important issues, such as the prevalence of anti-Black racism in South Asian communities. And so it's important that we know the identities that we hold and how we can leverage those identities, but also the identities that we need to amplify, right, of the groups that we don't belong to. So I think that that is really key in, in knowing our work, especially when it comes to biases and those sites which we're not aware of, right? As an able-bodied person, there's uh, intentional work that I need to do to understand the experiences of people with disabilities, both visible and invisible, and bring those to my work or that window of opportunity. So that's how I think identities inform and inspire the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, very early in our time working together, I attended one of the first workshops of yours that I'd seen and heard you talking about how it's as important to recognize the identities that you don't tend to think about, the ones that afford you privilege as the ones that you do. So I remember that really altering my perspective. Um, Absolutely. You know why? Because if you think about it, 
if I don't ever have to consider disabilities, or if I don't ever have to consider, you know, my uh, spiritual affiliation or my sexual orientation, then those are those unearned privileges. Those are the barriers I don't face. And so it's so important for me to be aware of those so that I can A, step into a role of allyship when I'm needed to, and I can amplify others and bring them to the table. Yeah, exactly, which is what makes conscious consideration of your various identities so important, for sure. So when holding in-person workshops, you use a lot of theater-based pedagogy in your training. Can you kind of tell me a little bit more about that school of thought and how it connects to DEI work? Absolutely. So I'm actually trained as an actor, and I went to school for theater. That's my first love. And I ended up getting a job as a teacher after I finished teacher's college. It was meant to be a backup to my acting, but then they sort of reversed uh, because I couldn't go out for auditions all the time. And, you know, I had those student loans to pay off. So I continued to use that theater background in education. And one of the theater pedagogies that I really leaned into was theater of the oppressed pedagogy. And that comes from the work of Augusto Boal, And he studied under Paulo Freire, who is famous for the pedagogy of the oppressed. And Augusto Boal created Theater of the Oppressed Pedagogy to really examine these levels of power and privilege that exist in society, and then to use theater as a tool to unpack them and learn how we can come together in a community. And so, for example, there is a huge book Augusta Boal wrote called Games for Actors and Non-Actors. So there might be games that he initiated with community members to actually immerse himself in, in power roles and roles of powerless so that folks could actually feel what that sensation is like. He also used things like town hall meetings where there'll be simulated dialogue, or sometimes he would go to communities, and this all started in South America, where folks would actually be in situations where they would be discussing different solutions and role-playing what members of the society would be feeling. And so there's a lot of different conventions, and without going into too much detail there, what I think is, is key is that Theater is about expression and about role play and about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think that the theater-based pedagogy allows us to have what I call the sense of embodied empathy. By stepping into these roles, you're actually feeling with all of your senses, right? Similar to method acting, I, I guess you could say, what it's like to be in these roles of powerful and powerless. So there's a game that I used called Murder by Numbers. And this is an activity, again, in the book called Games for Actors and Non-Actors. And the term murder by numbers, of course, was uh, contextual to what was happening in the cities that Augusta Bowell was working in, in South America. And so murder by numbers, the way it works is that I give everybody a number and then I call out numbers. And if your number is called, you pretend to die. And everybody else whose number isn't called is meant to rescue you. Now, it's kind of a social experiment because when I watch the group, I see what happens when I call someone's number, both the person whose number is called and the people who are watching. And I witness a sort of power dynamics in who goes to save the person and who doesn't. 
and also this idea of bystander intervention. And so I break all this down with folks to give them the idea and the perspective of, wait a minute, why didn't I intervene? Or why did I intervene? Or what would I do? And I ask them to shift from this idea of having individual power or power over somebody to actually how do we move towards collective power as community members? And so that's sort of the way in which I use theater to really get us to feel and think and work together. Yeah, so kind of demonstrating to people that the first step in rectifying unequal power dynamics is to recognize, you know, their existence in the first place and and feel that empathy. Absolutely. So we all have different levels of power and we all have some sort of agency in different situations. And then how we come together is important and you know, there's no such thing as being neutral. So how do we actually take action um, as members of community and have that accountability and responsibility for one another as human beings? Yeah, absolutely. I like that, that there's no true way to be neutral, for sure. So in your experience working with public school boards, how are they addressing issues of equity and anti-racism? And so institutional change is critical, of course, but it's also critical to make space in our personal lives for these conversations. So for those who are kind of wondering how to get into those conversations in their daily lives, how would you create space for courageous conversations around critical issues of inequity and justice? Yeah, I think that having courageous conversations is key and it's not easy, it's uncomfortable. That's why they take courage. I think that, uh, you know, there's no right or wrong space to have these conversations. I encourage folks to talk about it at the dinner table um, you know, if you're out for walks with your friends, to talk about what's happening in the world and, you know, have a conversation about how we feel about it. So it can be talking about, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. It can be talking about what's happening in the U.S. Uh, it can be learning and reading more and having critical dialogue with each other. And I think making space for that to be, you know, a common occurrence is key. And so for me, it's also about having these conversations, knowing that not everybody shares the same opinion or shares the same experiences as I do. Right? And I think that's the whole goal around creative conversations is to challenge one another and to ask the questions, to share experiences, um, and to really start to you know, plant seeds in each other's minds. Because if we have these conversations, then we can broaden our perspectives and slowly change. So that's what I that's what I would say about that. I think that it depends on what our goals are when we're creating these spaces. And I think that there are times when we want to call people into conversation. And sometimes we actually want to call out behaviors. And I think it's difficult to call out friends or family for saying something that's racist or homophobic. But I think it's critical and it's crucial that we do so. And I think that in today's you know, climate, it's important to have these dialogues so that we're able to be comfortable and, and have the courage to say, you know what, actually, that's not the term we use. Or actually, that joke was homophobic, racist, inappropriate, whatever it might be. And then maybe give them some tools of what they could say instead. Or share articles we're reading or, you know, Instagram posts or videos or TikToks or whatever it might be. Yeah, for sure. So kind of using calling in as an opportunity to engage people and expand the conversation and maybe uh, point to a new perspective. And then using calling out just to highlight instances uh, of behaviors that are just unacceptable. 
Is that kind of the delineation there? Yeah, I think so. Okay, awesome. Sounds good. So this is one that uh, folks on Instagram were curious about, and so am I. Uh, What are some of the misconceptions about DEI that you hear most often? And how do you respond to those misconceptions? So I think there could be many different angles that this question could go in. And so I will say that perhaps what I'm interpreting is that uh, folks often, one of the misconceptions is folks often think that we could just train people and people will just learn and everyone will be okay. But I think the key is that diversity training is not the key, right? It's not the solution. And while, you know, we offer training, that's just one part or one piece of the puzzle. So I think that's a misconception. Another misconception that I hear, um, and I don't even know if I would call it a misconception, but I think that there is um, an issue that definitely stifles transformation. And that is that, you know, folks will say, I don't see color or that reverse racism exists. And I think that was a, is a misconception that I hear in my work that actually uh, makes change stagnant. So that's really important. So when folks come into training, what are some misconceptions that you often see that people have and how do you go about correcting those? Yeah, so I think one of the misconceptions is that people will have a one and done training and that they will be super aware and they'll be able to lead or that they are... Um, you know, set to go on their path. And for me, I think it's key to to note that diversity training is not the solution. I think it's one aspect of a greater uh, set of of solutions and transformation, but diversity training alone is not the key. And so what I mean by that is that it takes a lot of personal work. As you asked me earlier, it takes a lot of work, you know, introspecting uh, on ourselves our own beliefs, our own values, our own biases, what we need to learn. And I think that uh, folks have to remember that one workshop or one training session is not going to provide us with that, that this work is a journey. It's not a destination. So I think that's key, that it's ongoing learning. The second thing I think is that folks always ask me for tips and tools, right? Of course, everyone wants to leave a workshop with something tangible to do. But there is no one recipe book or one size fits all strategy that's going to work for everything. It's about having, like you asked me, these courageous conversations. It's about having dialogue. It's about trial and error. Uh, We're all human. So it's about making those mistakes and learning from them. It's about growth. It's about reflection. And I think that, you know, folks are always looking for a quick fix and there is no quick fix. What I can say is that there are critical components to the work and to the training. For example, I can train you how to be more reflective. I can instill in you some questions to ask yourself as you continue your learning journey. I can guide you in that way. For me, the three pillars are awareness and understanding, education and learning, and then taking action. And you can go through those three phases One after the other, you can go back and forth, but it's really about A, gaining that awareness, continuing that ongoing learning journey, asking yourself critical questions, and then taking action to shift. And that could be shifting a behavior, a thought process, if you're an organization, shifting a policy or a practice, just one at a time. And so I think those are the three pillars I have, but it's not always 
a linear process and it's not always a um, solution focused method, right? So there's not one thing you do to eliminate racism, for example. It takes a lot of different things that we're going to do to lead towards eradicating systems of oppression. It may not happen in our lifetime because really it is not a destination. It's an ongoing journey and process to unpack and dismantle all those systems and of oppression that exists. Yeah, for sure. So would you say going into any kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion training, the best way to go into it is with the mindset of being ready to build skills and concepts and kind of engage in thought work as opposed to looking for a soundbite or a one-size-fits-all solution? Absolutely. I think one should go into a session, a workshop, whether it's, uh, you know, a set of, a series of workshops or whether it's like a long-term strategy engagement to really think about what are the mindsets that I need to shift? What are the reflections I need to do? Um, and like you said, where's that thought work? Yeah, absolutely. So as far as your experience over the past few years, what have you found to be the most challenging aspect of being a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and founder? Yeah, there's so many. I think owning a business has its own set of challenges from, you know, hiring staff to invoicing and operations and all that business side work. And I think that that can be very difficult when you're trying to actually put content together and be transformational. So I think that that would be the one of the most challenging things is to really scale and grow. And as I said, doing this work uh, full-time is key. And so I've been able to do that work, um, this work full-time this year by taking a sabbatical from my other role in the school board. And that's been really key to be able to dedicate my full-time. But I think what is most challenging, um, yeah, is is doing it all. And that's really challenging. And to find um, a community to, to do this work with. And I think I have found community in different areas and some thought partners and some coaches to guide me through this work. And I think that's been challenging, right? To figure out the path I'm on, to figure out the trajectory, you know, you know, how much to charge for a workshop or what staff I need, all of, all of those things. And so I think that's really challenging. The other challenge is, of course, there's not enough time in the day. I think as a founder uh, of an organization, there are no off moments. So I don't really get a day off. I don't really get a moment off. If there is something that needs to be done, I have to fill that gap, which means a lot of, uh, you know, risking my sleep hours. So that's, I think, would be so many of those challenging things. There's, there's many challenging things, but it's balancing, balancing all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So then on the flip side, what would you say is the most rewarding part of this work you're doing? The most rewarding part is actually sharing content that means a lot to me. And when I see either in the eyes or in the words um, of participants and organizations that I work with, when I see that there is an aha moment, when I see that there is some transformation happening, whether they're shifting and writing a policy, whether it's anecdotally, they tell me that they've you know, shifted some of their practices. That's, I think, what's most rewarding is seeing that the work that I'm doing is making an impact, no matter how small, no matter how big, that I'm making an impact and that I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about and I'm really committed to. I think that is what is most rewarding for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So 
for folks who are curious about what your day-to-day looks like as a founder and CEO of this company, can you tell us a little bit what that would be like? Kind of just walk us through. So the life of an entrepreneur is definitely hectic. I have learned that keeping a healthy body definitely helps my brain work harder. So I usually wake up in the morning and I have uh, my one hour workout. And then I like to have some time to decompress. So I have my breakfast and I go through emails. I get a lot of emails. And then after emails on a typical day, I usually have a few client meetings and client calls, whether current clients or prospective clients. And then I usually have some time to create content. I do some research. Um, I'm building slide decks. I often have touch points with uh, folks who work with me to either follow up on projects. I like to have a bit of a late afternoon break right before dinner where I like to go for a walk, but that doesn't happen all the time. And then I come home, have dinner, take a bit of a break, and then I work again till probably around 11 and 12. Uh, midnight, depending on what I've got going on. But I definitely like to take my walking breaks and I like to um, get productivity done late at night. That's when I feel like I'm most productive. A lot of my colleagues work early in the morning. Mine is late at night. So I would say consisting of, yeah, client meetings, um, some exercise, some content development and research, and uh, definitely some breaks. Yeah, for sure. Although I know sometimes the work follows you on your breaks because we touch base occasionally on your walks. Absolutely. So that you know, yes, you know what? I've got my headphones and if I'm walking and I'm outdoors, I definitely don't mind taking a meeting here and there. I've actually had, you know, some clients call me and I'm like, I hope you don't mind. I'm taking this call on a walk because I need some air or I need some fresh air. Uh, I need some exercise. And they're like, absolutely. We get it, especially during the pandemic. You know, I would make sure that I was walking one to two hours when things were closed down. But I will say that I try to build in a lunch break for myself. Um, I don't always take it, but it's in my calendar. So I, I have that and I'm, I'm working on, uh, you know, closing some of my meetings up to, you know, to have more meetings on like Mondays, Thursdays and Fridays so that I can actually um, have time to read and have time to create content um, and research and things like that. Because there's never a dull moment. So uh, it's it's always something happening. So kind of on that note, are there any tips and tricks that you've picked up over time that you can kind of let the aspiring entrepreneur in on that maybe you didn't expect to, or, or see coming when you took on this job? Uh, okay, so tips and tricks, I guess, to make the to make the work smoother or efficient? Yeah, efficiency and just, yeah. Yeah, I think there's so many tools out there. I think Calendly has really been um, great because before it was going back and forth with people to schedule meetings. And that takes a lot of time. It's like emailing back three or four times. Can you make it this time or this time or this time? And I just felt like paying for Calendly and having like Calendly for my coaching clients, for, you know, people who were potential clients, and then folks who were my current clients was so much easier because then I was able to actually just send them the link and then they can book it based on their availability and mine. I know some people may be opposed to that, but I think it's like so much of a time saver for me. So I love the scheduling. I think also for me, it's really building my team and I'm still working on this, but I think it's so key to build a strong team 
with the skill set that you need. And I'm always working on this and working back and forth. That's something I'm growing now as I'm really scaling. Uh, that's something else I've learned. Um, again, I've learned to take some breaks and to set my boundaries and say no. Something I'm constantly working on. Um, not good at it yet, but definitely setting some of those boundaries has been has been key, I think. Also, um, you know, I think that uh, we're starting to use some, you know, scheduling software like Monday.com and things like that. But I think those are some of those efficiencies that come when you when you start a company. None of them are, you know, inexpensive. So it takes a lot of financial investment as well. So I think those are all kind of key. That's what I would say. Does that answer your question? It does. Just kind of learning as you go and kind of adopting new software to just make things smoother and easier. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of things that it's, you know, I think the life of an entrepreneur is kind of learning and testing and definitely doing all of that. And some things work and some things don't work. And definitely, I think streamlining is key. So over the past few years, you've been doing this work and I've kind of been seeing chatter, particularly recently on social media, that diversity, equity and inclusion is having a moment. It's kind of becoming trendier and more popular in the public eye. Are you seeing that? Are you kind of seeing a shift in how people are responding to DEI training? Is there kind of more interest at the corporate level? How are you kind of interfacing with that trend or are you seeing it at all? Yeah, I think for me, I live, breathe and work in the areas of justice. It's been important to me since I was probably three years old. I remember so many things happening around me and events. Um, I do think that since the murder of George Floyd, folks have been highlighted or folks have been focused on issues of racism and inequity. I don't think this is a bad thing. Uh, I don't think it's a moment. I think it is a opportunity for folks to lean into transformation. Um, I do think that it is a moment of reckoning. I think these issues have always been around as we know, but I think that folks are really spotlighting and paying attention to these issues. And I think it's up to folks doing the work, up to the allies to keep the momentum. Because like I said, it's a journey, not a destination. We're not going to be able to eradicate racism in my lifetime, but we are able to work towards moving towards equity, moving towards justice, moving towards the disruption, dismantling of these systems and structures of power by each one of us taking ownership and accountability to disrupt the way we do things because each of us do does have that agency. So I think that people might say, yeah, it's a moment, but we are the ones who give that moment fuel or let it die down. So I say, continue to have these courageous conversations continue to do this work, continue to learn, continue to amplify those on social media who are sharing this work, continue to actually do the work yourself. And if we take accountability as humans, as citizens of this global world, then this will not lose momentum because diversity, equity, inclusion are not flavors of the month. They are what we live, what we breathe, uh, what we what we are, right? And there are communities who have been facing oppression for hundreds and thousands of years. And so it is the time, it is our responsibility to address historical oppression, address current systems and structures of oppression. And we together can keep that momentum alive by doing the work. Yeah. And so in in fulfilling this responsibility of ours, in like seizing this moment uh, as an opportunity in creating systemic change, 
Do you feel that that starts with kind of institution and policy? Do you think it starts at that level? Or do you think it starts interpersonally with social media and conversation? Or does it have to happen in both components at the same time? What do you think is the best way to keep that momentum? Yeah, I think it's all at once. I think an individual can continue to learn, read books, you know, take workshops, uh, check their own biases. And I think that there is a need for policy and uh, practice changes from government to uh, small organizations. And in Canada, the recent federal budget has dedicated a lot of funds to some of these policy changes, some of these programs, some of these initiatives. So they need to happen alongside that individual work. And the conversations need to keep happening. So it's both and. It's individual work, really doing that introspection of where do I have power and privilege? Where do I need to leverage that power and privilege? What do I need to learn more about? It's at the institutional level, uh, changing and creating policies and practices. And it's at that cultural level within community to shift that. So personal, cultural, and structural level has to happen across all to actually be effective. And that's why we need that momentum to keep going. We need to continue having these conversations in our workplaces, um, you know, in our cubicles, over the computer, in our households, over social media, everywhere. It has to be a multi-pronged, layered approach. Yeah, for sure. So just taking every opportunity in every kind of circle and community in our lives to initiate and continue these conversations and to make sure that momentum doesn't slow. Yeah, it has to be embodied. It has to be part of everything we do, right? And and folks who might think, well, you know, I'm from a marginalized community. What can I give? We all have experiences that we can give. Or if you're from a privileged group, you might think, well, I've never faced oppression, but we can all work together to build community, to listen to community. We can all learn more about ourselves And many of us do have areas of privilege. And privilege is not only those unearned advantages, it's the lack of barriers that we had to face, right? So for example, as a cisgender woman, I don't have to face barriers that perhaps a trans woman would have to face, for example, right? Or um, a person with a disability would have to face. So all of those are areas within I can leverage my privilege to either create opportunities to learn more about in my personal life, Uh, and really share that. And so I think that everyone has a role to play to really shift and break down systems of oppression in our society. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where that embodied empathy piece comes in as well. Kind of people who maybe experience more privilege or experience fewer barriers, kind of allowing them to understand the dynamics of the oppression that they're working on um, and kind of engage in allyship and co-conspiratorship through that. Absolutely. And I think Folks often think of privilege as a uh, dirty word, right? But it's not. It's about what are the opportunities that you have to serve other communities. It's about humanity, right? It's about using the circumstance that you were given by luck or, you know, heritage, and then using that to do some good. Absolutely. So this is my last question for you today. And so what would your advice be to a person or organization that wants to improve the diversity and inclusiveness of their workplace? Oh, wow. That is a loaded question. Uh, I think that the advice for an individual or an organization that want to improve their uh, diversity and their inclusiveness in the workplace is to recognize that diversity is not the same as inclusion. Uh, diversity is a reality of our climate that we're in. Diversity is you know, having different lived backgrounds and experiences, different uh, racial backgrounds, abilities, skills, growing up in different neighborhoods. That's diversity. Inclusion is the actual intentional step to create 
a sense of belonging once diverse folks are in the door. So I would say to an organization that they need to figure out what is working well with their organization and what needs to be adjusted. And I think that that is key, right? Um, also, if we're thinking about improving the diversity and inclusion um, climate in our workplace, I would say, what's the why? What's the true intention behind that? What's the time and the budget that you're gonna dedicate towards that? Is the purpose and goal of this truly authentic? And who is it serving? So I think that's like the short answer I would say, because I could go on and on and on, but I think that um, the advice would be to really to look at the strategy and to look at the long-term goals of, of what they wanna do to improve the diversity and inclusiveness um, in their workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So thank you so much for taking the hot seat today and answering all my questions. Um, I had a great time and it was really cool to kind of hear more about your experience founding and running Curated Leadership. Thank you so much, Layla. If you love this episode, please rate and comment on our episodes and let us know what you would like to hear more of. Follow the podcast and visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and listen to past episodes at www.curated-leadership.com or wherever you find your podcasts.